Well, we're continuing our, our study this morning in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 12, but I thought it would be helpful to prepare our hearts. I'm going to read in your hearing Psalm 102, the entirety of Psalm 102. It's the, the passage from which our quote is drawn. So I, I think this will be helpful in our thinking process this morning. So I want to read Psalm 102, and that's the the particular psalm from which the quote we'll be considering this morning is taken. So if you would turn there, Psalm 102, beginning in verse 1. A prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to thee. Do not hide thy face from me in the day of my distress. Incline thine ear to me in the day when I call. Answer me quickly. For my days have been consumed in smoke, and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican of the wilderness. I have become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of thine indignation and thy wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a lengthened shadow, and I wither away like grass. But thou, O Lord, dost abide forever, and thy name to all generations. Thou wilt arise and have compassion on Zion. For it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. Surely thy servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord in all the kings of the earth thy glory. <clears throat> for the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death, that men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord, he has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. I, I say, O oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. The next three verses are quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. Of old thou didst found the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Even they will perish but thou dost endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing thou wilt change them, and they will be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. The children of thy servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before thee. And let us pray, shall we? Father, this, <clears throat> this morning, thank you that we can... Uh, come before thee and, and praise thee and worship thee and, and sing to thee and delight in thee and desire thee. I, I thank you for each one that you have been pleased to bring here this morning. And in, in these moments, I, I would pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to convey your, your precious word um, 
and to bring it forth in, in a way that is honoring to thee and pleasing to thee. And I, I do pray for um, the work of your Holy Spirit, not only in the communicating of your word, but also in helping us to understand it in our own souls, to embrace it and to make the, the kind of application that would be honoring to thee and edifying to our own hearts and lives. So we pray that you would help us and I just commit this time to thee and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been moving through this section beginning in verse 5 down through verse uh, 14 and noted that the theme that gives it unity, it's the superiority of the person of Christ over angels. And this, this note has been sounded in different ways throughout the first chapter. God the Father does not say to any of the angels, you are my son, today I have begotten you, today I have exalted you to the right hand of, of, of dignity or the most high. Uh, the angels actually are presented as worshiping the person of Christ. His throne, his rule is forever and ever. He is addressed by God the Father as God. And then in verses 10 through 12 constitute the sixth quotation um, from the Old Testament to make this point, and they replicate verses 25 to 27 of Psalm 102. And, and the way in which this citation from the Old Testament is used to make the point that Christ is superior to angels, fundamentally it's by emphasizing um, our Lord's relationship to creation, his relationship to creation. Now, the text has already touched on that. His creative works were noted in, in verse 2 of chapter 1. It says, through whom also he made the earth. And then in, in verse 3, it indicates he upholds all things by the word of his power. And, and here, his relationship to creation, which shows his supremacy over angels, his relationship to creation, it's brought out in two different ways. Number one, he is responsible for initial creation. And number two, he is responsible for its future destruction. His relationship to um, creation is brought out in two ways. His responsibility for initial creation, and secondly, his responsibility for the future destruction of that which he has created. So the supremacy of Christ is disclosed here generally speaking, by relationship to his creation, and then more specifically, um, his responsibility initially to create the heavens and the earth, and then in the future, his responsibility and activity on, in the dissolution of the heavens and the earth, that which he has created. So the, the plan this morning is that this reality of the Lord's supremacy over angels, um, which is revealed um, by his relationship to creation, will um, develop our thinking by means of two assertions, moving through verses 10 through 12, two assertions, and that's going to be followed by four life-changing implications. How about that? And, well, hopefully they're helpful. But two assertions, and then followed by four implications that come from that. So number one, assertion number one, and this is to kind of restate what we have noted here, is the responsibility for initial creation is assigned particularly to the person of Christ. The responsibility for initial creation is ascribed to the person of Christ. Notice verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. So this comprehensive creative activity immediately establishes his supremacy over angels. Angels are magnificent, splendid beings, but they are created beings. And the role of angels in creation of the world was really to, to glory and rejoice in what they saw when the world was being created. Just to quote to you from Job chapter 38, and this is where God reveals himself to Job. 
Job chapter 38 and verse 1 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know, or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? Excuse me, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Well, they were, Job was not there, but the angels were. And verse 7 says, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So the response of the angelic realm to this initial creation was singing together and, and shouting for joy. So they were jubilant observers. So what I want to do under this first heading is offer four factors that govern our thinking about our Lord's relationship to creation. Four factors that govern our thinking about his relationship to creation. And the first one is uh, fairly self-evident. It requires his pre-existence. I mean, he had to be there in order to accomplish creation. And the language of our text, um, thou, Lord, in the beginning, really fits in with John chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, which fits in with Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, as well as Colossians 1.17, which says, referring to the person of Christ, He is before all things. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the principle of cohesion in the universe, as a J.B. Lightfoot put it. A second factor is it brings out his comprehensive activity in creation. It includes the heavens and the earth. Uh, he lay the foundation and the work of his hands are equivalent to the idea that God created. Lay the foundation and works of his hands. So his part in original creation here, it's not presented as being limited or restricted in any sense. Uh, to lay the foundation of the earth here does not imply any kind of restriction. It's not like one who uh, lays a foundation for a home that is being built and that crew is gone and then other people come along and, and um, indulge in the further phases of construction. But rather the idea of laying the foundation accents the concept of stability, the stability of the creation. And, and a foundation does that as well. There's a, there's a sense of a solid foundation being needed for the stability of the physical structure that rests upon it. Uh, the word translated foundation occurs as founded in Matthew seven twenty five and in verse 24. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. And yet it did not fall for it was founded upon the rock. And the imagery is very suggestive to our minds. A house that is built on sand or a house that's built on a hillside, kind of tenuous, but it's stable if it is built on a rock. So it means that he was not simply uh, involved in one part of creation, but he's, he was responsible for the totality of creation. Uh, heaven um, is a term that you're aware can have different nuances of meaning. It can refer to the firmament or to the starry heavens or the place of the atmosphere or the abode of the divine or the abode of angels or the place where the Christian dead dwell. But, but the idea here is heaven and earth is synonymous for the totality of the universe. And I think anyone, if you reflect a little bit on this idea of God creating, and here it's the sun creating all things out of nothing, I mean, your mind can go in different directions, but it impresses upon our minds the incomparable power of somebody that that can do that, creating all things out of nothing. 
and, and also kind of an unrivaled creativity. I know we use the word creativity to, to describe certain people, but Proverbs 3.19 says, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So we can think of the variety in creation or the variety within creation, whether it's related to trees or flowers or plants or animals, and just all kinds of different directions. But here, our Lord's relationship to creation, which emphasizes his supremacy over angels, it's marked by comprehensiveness. He, cre- he created the heavens and the earth and all that is, that is in them. <clears throat> Excuse me. A third factor that governs our, our thinking here is the Lord's creative act is sovereign. It's sovereign. And here I'm just picking up on the import of the title Lord. He's referred to, and thou Lord in the beginning. It's a title that emphasizes his sovereignty, his rule, his reign. Uh, In Hebrews, it refers to him as Lord many, many times. Here's just one other example. In Hebrews 13, 20, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. And one commentator brought out, I thought this was kind of a helpful point, that it also, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, also uses the term Lord 12 times in reference to God when quoting from the Old Testament. So it kind of supports the idea of our, our Lord himself, the deity of the person of Christ, and also the sovereignty of the person of Christ. So Lord emphasizes the sovereignty of Christ as the creator. And then fourthly, his being the creator of the heavens and the earth emphasizes something of his majesty, something of his splendor, something of his magnificence. In Psalm 19.1, it says the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And the idea there is creation is speaking to anyone who will listen and, and whoever will listen, it's glorious. It, it's amazing. It, it's incomparable. Psalm 8, 3, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy hands, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take note of him? Excuse me, that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him. So when you're reflecting on the magnificence of creation, there's a, a sense of insignificance that can come over our hearts. Calvin Commenting on Psalm 19.1, wrote, When a man, from beholding and contemplating the heavens, has been brought to acknowledge God, he will learn also to reflect upon and to admire his wisdom and power displayed on the face of the earth, not only in general, but even in the minutest plants. Uh, William Plummer, in his work on the Psalms, makes reference to the, the French military commander Napoleon. He said, returning from Egypt to the Mediterranean, Napoleon heard his officers avowing atheism. Pointing to the stars, he said, who made all these? And atheism had no answer. And Plummer, he goes on to talk about a personal experience he had. Early June 1858 at Lewisburg, Virginia, some 2,000 feet above the level of the sea, the atmosphere was in the best condition for seeing. The heavens were so brilliant that I do not think I can forget the splendid vision while memory does her office. Bright stars and numerous nebulae overwhelm my imagination. Had a, a man never before held such a sight, it seems impossible, but that he must have confessed to God. So stupendous and glorious is the blazing universe above and around us that one of our poets has said, an undevout astronomer is mad. And then he quotes the Roman statesman Cicero, who said, what can be so plain and so clear as when we behold the heavens and view the heavenly bodies that we should conclude there's some deity of a most excellent mind by whom these things are governed. I'm persuaded one of the reasons the Bible 
says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's because they're suppressing the, the overt, clear display of God in nature. So <clears throat> we have these factors that govern our understanding of the Lord's relationship to creation, especially original creation. And the totality of creation is ascribed to the person of Christ, and that underscores his superiority over angels. And then our second assertion about his relationship to creation is that the future dissolution of that creation or destruction of that creation is also attributed to him. And now we're thinking of verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. They will perish, but thou remainest. And they all will become old as a garment. And as a mantle, thou wilt roll them up. As a garment, they will also be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. So verses 11 and 12 bring out the upcoming destruction or dissolution of the initial creation that he was responsible for. And the fact of the matter is this quotation from Psalm 102, much more emphasis is placed on the future and the future termination of the, of the creation than the initial creation itself. <clears throat> so the supremacy of Christ over angels is brought, brought out here by his relationship to creation in two ways. His responsibility for initial creation and then his activity in the future destruction of what he initially created. And, and that was what receives the greater emphasis and the greater priority here. We'll seek to move our way through verses 11 and 12 here by means of three observations. Three observations. Number one, the present creation is marked by impermanence. The present creation is marked by impermanence, which doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, it looks permanent. Um, when you look at, at mountains and, and trees and oceans, it seems like they would be here forever. Uh, on Friday night, Carolyn and I took a little walk in the neighborhood. You remember it was clear out, and Mount Rainier, of course, dominates the skyline around here. And you look at something like that, and it feels permanent, like it is going to be here forever. But these verses emphasize very clearly the transient character of the present universe. And it does so by such phrases as, as these, they will perish. That means destroy. It means ruin. It needs to be gone out of existence. If um, maybe you had somebody, uh, a friend visiting this area, and you uh, showed them the city of Seattle, and you might take them to the Space Needle, and then you would show them um, where the Seahawks play, Lumen Field. Did I get that right? Lumen Field, where the Seahawks play. Uh, and you might say to them, there used to be another stadium there called the, the Kingdom. But it, it is gone. They, they imploded it back in the year 2000. It doesn't exist anymore. It, it perished, so to speak. That's the idea here. They will perish. They will be destroyed. They will no longer have an existence. <clears throat> they will become old as a garment. Uh, the all here, they will, they will all become old, corresponds to the they and they will perish. It refers to the present heavens and the earth. So the original creation affected by the Lord's power was comprehensive, was all-inclusive, and the future destruction will equally be comprehensive. <clears throat> as a mantle, or as a robe, or as a cloak, that will roll them up. As a garment, they will all be changed. Number two, uh, the impermanence of the present creation is presented in contrast with the permanence of the sun. The impermanence or the transitory character of the, of the present creation, it's contrasted with the permanence of the sun. They will perish, but thou remainest. They will cease to exist. But the Christ who created them, the Savior who created them, will not. One commentator wrote, it expresses the contrast between the mutable universe, the changeable universe, and the eternal Lord. 
As a garment, they will also be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end, so they will cease to be. But the Lord of glory who made them will continue to exist, and he will not change. And he will continue to exist because he is eternal. Number three, the dissolution of the present creation, it's attributed to the activity of Christ. He was the cause of initial creation, he will be the cause of its future termination. Our Lord, will, he's not simply presented here as someone who will watch what will happen. He is going to make it happen in the future. They will perish. The, the text indicates, as a mantle, thou will roll them up, or as a robe or a, a cloak, thou will roll them up. The same kind of imagery is found in the book of Isaiah in chapter 34. And all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, and all hosts will... Also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the the fig tree. And I think what stands out here is that the ease with which this is accomplished, it's compared to rolling up or or folding up a garment, a, a cloak. If someone is in reasonably good health, but you're not used to manual labor, and then maybe one day you help somebody put on a roof, or one day you use a jackhammer. You're, you're, you're exhausted by the time the end of the day comes. But if you're in reasonably good health, and you, you fold a towel and put it away, you, you feel like that is not, you've not expended much energy. And that's the kind of thought here, and the imagery that is used. It will be easy for him to destroy in the future what he has created in the past. That's because he's infinitely powerful, and, and when he expends power, it doesn't deplete at all the remaining power that he has in his being. So we see here the, the supremacy of Christ over angels is brought out by the character of his relationship to creation. His infinite power is responsible for initial creation and sustaining the heavens and the earth. He also will be responsible for the future accomplishment of its destruction or its termination. But he himself will remain unchanged because he is unchangeable. So in light of that, let me uh, offer four implications Four implications that I hope will be helpful just in our own living of the Christian life. And the first one is simply that a continued consideration of our Lord's power in creating and then sustaining the universe. That This is a God-intended means of delivering our souls from the fear of man. A consideration of what God the Father, or here what God the Son does in creating and sustaining the universe. That's presented in the Bible as a means of delivering us from the fear of man. The Bible says the fear of man is a snare. And I presume we all understand what it's like to fall into that trap, to be a man-pleaser or to fear man. But listen to Isaiah 51.12. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? And he goes on, and of the Son of Man, who is like grass, that you have forgotten the Lord, your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. So it brings out here the cause of of fearing man. It's forgetting God. It's forgetting what the Maker is like. To forget is to dismiss from the mind or just to stop remembering. So the cure for this malady is for Christians. The, The cure for this malady for Christians is to remember who stretched out the heavens and who laid the foundations of the earth. It's to, it's to contemplate the reality that He created the world and sustains the world. John Owen wrote, there is no just cause of fear unto believers from anything in heaven or earth, seeing they're all of the making at the disposal of Jesus Christ. Uh, Implication number two, a consolation of soul in the midst of afflictions is especially 
a function of allowing the soul to be affected, but, uh, but excuse me, by what our Lord will most certainly do in the future. Consolation of soul in the midst of afflictions, and this is taken from a psalm where there was tremendous affliction going on, um, but consolation of soul is a function of allowing our hearts to be affected by what the Lord most certainly will do in the future. This is really the great focus of the quotation, what the Lord certainly will do in, in the future. And the words, as I indicated earlier, the words of the text are taken from the psalm. It's entitled, A Prayer of the Afflicted, when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Let me just reread the first part of that. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to thee. Do not hide thy face from me in the day of distress. Incline thine ear to me in the day when I call. Answer me quickly, for my days have been consumed in smoke, and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forgot to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a excuse me. I resemble a pelican in the wilderness. I become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse, for I have eaten ashes as bread. That's the mental condition of the one who's praying all these things. It feels like a nine, it's kind of a spiritual 911 call. And in the course of the, the prayer here, what is brought out is not so much what God is doing currently, but what God will do in the future. That, that, that's the, and that's what seems to change the heart of the psalmist. In verse 25, he says, of old thou dost found the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Even they will perish, but thou dost endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. Thou will change them, and they will be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. So what helps him is to really focus and consider what God most certainly, and what Christ will most certainly do in the future. It's the same kind of logic as Romans 8.18 I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So there's no denial of present distresses, um, but their, their effect, their present effect is minimized and mitigated by the, uh, the assurance of the eternal glory of God and the eternal glory of Christ and what they will do. John Owen wrote, God oftentimes declares and proposes these properties of, of his nature unto us for our support, consolation, and relief in our troubles, distresses, and endeavors after peace and rest for our souls. So here are those properties of nature intended to, to produce consolation would be the power of Christ, the immutability of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ, the eternity of Christ. It's focusing on these perfections of his being and what he will do. Well, then, thirdly, a third implication, the language of our text, and especially phrases like, but thou remainest, thou art the same, thy years will not come to an end. The language of our text assures our souls that God through Christ will most certainly accomplish and bring to pass everything he promises and everything he threatens. It assures our souls that he will bring about everything he promises and everything that he threatens. It's impossible that anything he says will not come to fruition. If you were, if you were changeable, of course, such would be the case. This is true negatively uh, for those who reject him and those who mock him and those who dismiss him. Listen to these words from Second Peter chapter 3. 
Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. That's what Christ will accomplish when he comes. So in spite of those mockers who reject him, and who the only time they use hell in their language is when they're telling a joke, or the only time they, they speak of the second coming is when they are taunting evangelical religion. Whatever the Lord says in terms of a threat, that will come to pass. But then positively, for those who love him, for those who persevere in the faith, every promise will also come to pass. In 2 Peter 3.11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we, we rely on his promises and we are assured that it will come to pass because the, the creation is impermanent, but the creator is not. The Lord of glory is not. Uh, the creation is transient, but he is eternal. Everything he says will come to pass. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In Isaiah fifty-five eleven, it says, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. How do we know that he will accomplish his word? Because he will be there and he will not change and his purposes will not change. So then a fourth and, and final implication here would be that a, a great means and a great uh, aid that God has ordained to promote a real consolation in our soul in the midst of affliction and difficulty is that um, in the context of our prayers, expressing to God what we know to be true about him as it relates to his character and purposes. So a means of consolation is that in prayer to God, we express to him what we know about him, what we know about his character, and what we know about his purposes. And again, to, to requote the, the psalmist, of old thou dost found the earth and the heavens are the work of thy hands even they will perish but thou dost endure and all of them will wear out like a garment like clothing thou will change them and they will be changed but thou art the same and, and thy years will not come to an end and we would conclude god understands that he's not changeable i mean he gets that but but the psalmist is, is doing this here for the for the good of his own soul and, and the effect is re-impressing on the mind what we know to be true and that has an edifying effect to the soul it's it's reminding god so to speak in prayer of those things that we already know about him with respect to his perfections and with respect to his purposes. That does something to, this, to the strengthening of the soul. It's the same kind of logic, I think, of, uh, that we read about in Isaiah chapter 40, 
where verse 21 says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The thought is like, you need to be reminded of this. You have heard. Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Is he who sits above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain? He spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes eyes on high and see who has created these stars the one who leads forth their host by number he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power not one of them is missing so the the means of edification or the means of consolation is especially in the midst of prayer it, it is ascribing to god what we know to be true about his character what we know to be true about his purposes we we do that when we pray and it's an edifying um, exercise for the good of our own souls Well, let us pray. Father, I do ask that you would uh, take what we have considered today and uh, apply it to our own souls. We we do thank you and we do praise you that we serve a God that is mighty, a God that is glorious. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his supreme excellency. And I I ask that you would increase our own uh, delight in him, our own devotedness to him. We pray that you would cause us to increase in our delight in his being and to increase in our own understanding of your purposes and to rejoice in what you have planned and what you have promised with the assurance that nothing can change any of your purposes for the people whom you have given to your son. And we thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.